You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Anita Diamond. This program originally aired in 2007. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Kanoy, and this is The Exchange. Best-selling author Anita Diamond traveled to New Hampshire last week to join us for our Writers on a New England Stage series, a partnership between New Hampshire Public Radio, the Music Hall in Portsmouth, and River Run Books, bringing the best in literature to the Granite State. Anita Diamond gained international fame a decade ago with her novel about the women of biblical times, The Red Tent. It began a new mission for her writing career to explore the untold stories in history, stories of common people too busy scratching out an existence to record their thoughts or the events of their lives for posterity. Diamond's latest book tells more of these stories, but is set closer to home on the north shore of Massachusetts. The book's called The Last Days of Dogtown, a fictional account of a real-life village outside Gloucester. The residents of Dogtown are society's outcasts, women who never married, orphans, prostitutes, and freed slaves. Diamond's book gives us a rich portrait of these people and their meager community life, even as the community itself is dying out. Thursday night at the Music Hall, Diamond first spoke about the historical and fictional aspects of her book. Later, I joined her on stage with a few of my own questions and many from the audience. Our house band Dreadnought, heard here, provided the evening's music. Today in The Exchange, we bring you part of this performance. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be on this beautiful stage in this beautiful uh, hall. And I've, I haven't been here before. It's a real honor. It's a real treat. The only bad thing is I can't see a thing. I'm sure the room is filled with beautiful women and a handful of extremely self-reliant men. <laughs> I'm going to talk this evening for a little while, and, uh, and I really look forward to answering your questions and sitting down with Laura. Um, which is, I think, my favorite format for evenings like this now, more in relation than, uh, than speaking. But before we get to that part, I want to talk a little bit about writing historical fiction, a little bit in general, and then more specifically about The Last Days of Dogtown. As was mentioned, I was drawn to writing historical fiction in the first place because I'm drawn to untold stories, to silences in history and in texts that seem to me anyway to call out for a voice. And the appeal for me of writing stories set in the past is it gives me great freedom as well to give voice to people who are voiceless, to discover the power of people who might otherwise be considered powerless, and to uncover the beauty in lives lived almost out of the purview of memory itself, which explains, I suppose, why I tend to focus on the lives of women. A few years ago, it's actually more than a few now, uh, when the hours uh, came out in movie theaters everywhere and everybody was rediscovering Virginia Woolf, I pulled out the copy of A Room of One's Own from my bookshelf, which I had read as an undergraduate in college. It was 95 cents. It was a paperback. That's how old it was. I hadn't read it since college. And I took it with me on an airplane. I had a short hop. And I almost grabbed the person next to me and said, oh my god, I feel like I've discovered the cornerstone for my creative life. 
And without really knowing it, um, I feel that certainly The Red Tent and the other fiction that I've written, and some of the nonfiction I've written as well, is an attempt to answer a challenge that Virginia Woolf articulated so beautifully and with great humor, actually, in 1928. There's this one passage in which Virginia Woolf muses about women of the Elizabethan period, which was a time that yielded great uh, fictional female characters, many of them created by William Shakespeare. But as she wrote in 1928, quote, one knows nothing detailed, nothing perfectly true and substantial about the Elizabethan woman. History scarcely mentions her. She never writes her own life and scarcely keeps a diary. There are only a handful of her letters in existence. She left no plays or poems by which we can judge her. What one wants, wrote Wolfe, is a mass of information. At what age did she marry? How many children had she as a rule? What was her house like? Had she a room to herself? Did she do the cooking? All these facts lie somewhere, presumably, in parish registers and account books. The life of the average Elizabethan woman must be scattered about somewhere, would one collect and make a book of it. What I find deplorable, wrote Virginia Woolf, looking about the bookshelves, is that nothing is known about women before the 18th century. I really did get goosebumps when I reread that. Um, because I do see my novels as an ongoing part of the, of the need to answer that challenge, that question of where are the lives of women, this, the hidden lives of women in history. And in the years since 1928, social historians, feminist historians, and historians of the working class, labor historians, have in fact been unearthing all of those records and all of those details that she was longing for in 1928. When I sat down to write The Red Tent, however, there were no parish records to consult. There were no letters. When I wanted to find out information about a world in the ancient Near East which disappeared you know, a few thousand years ago, the historical record that exists about that period has very little, believe me, to say about the daily lives of women. The number of children they had when they married, all of that is lost. Those are all many of the details that I got to invent when I wrote The Red Tent, based on little bits of information that I gleaned from histories of Canaan, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. Women did not leave great monuments of any kind. The monuments of women's lives throughout history, and especially in a period before writing, before literacy anyway, the monuments women make are uh, of bread and of fabric and of children, and those leave no record, um, not even a, even a faint trace in an archaeological one. Virginia Woolf um, also wrote about being curious about ordinary women. Um, she wrote, one catches a glimpse of her in the lives of the great, whisking away to the background, concealing, I sometimes think, a wink, a laugh, perhaps a tear. I'm sure I had forgotten that phrase, and yet in reading Genesis 34, you glimpse this character named Dina, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, as she heads off to visit the women of a town called Shechem. Then whatever it is that happened to her happened out of earshot, off camera, if you will. Her life is lived outside the focus of the biblical tale of the great men of Jacob and Joseph and Judah and the lesser sons too, Simon and Levi and even Benjamin. That she is mentioned at all for me though was like this open door, a question that wanted answering, a red flag. Now, in the last days of Dogtown, I was again drawn to tell untold stories of women's lives, barely glimpsed in history. And these women are poor and rural, 
women who lived in the 1820s and 30s on this rocky fist of coastland not far from here, Cape Ann, Massachusetts. This is a book about marginal people living in the backwoods of Massachusetts where they could live to some extent outside of conventions, but where life was very hard nonetheless. The women in the last days of Dogtown are women of the sort who were sometimes branded witches because they did defy convention, and some of them made their living the only way a woman could at that period. Hint, hint. And in the last days of Dogtown, I imagine those women as surviving because they could depend on each other's kindness and on each other's support, which was a lifeline for survival. They depended on friendship, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the secret healing bomb that keeps the universe from falling apart into a million pieces. Something else that Virginia Woolf wrote about, in fact, in A Room of One's Own. Virginia Woolf imagined reading a book with two characters named Chloe and Olivia. Chloe liked Olivia, I read, and then it struck me how immense a change was there. Chloe liked Olivia perhaps for the first time in literature. Cleopatra did not like Octavia. And how completely Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra would have been altered had she done so. Cleopatra's only feeling about Octavia is one of jealousy. Is she taller than I am? How does she do her hair? The play perhaps required no more. But how interesting it would have been if the relationship between the two women had been complicated. All these relationships between women, wrote Virginia Woolf, rapidly recalling the splendid gallery of fictitious women are too simple. So much has been left out. So much has been unattempted. I really do try to write complicated relationships between women. So I write about friendships that sustain, but friendships that often sometimes crumble and ultimately do not suffice. I try to write about mothers and daughters who love each other and some who don't who talk past each other and who connect in spite of themselves, the complicated ball of wax that it is to be a woman. Now, in the last days of Dogtown, I took on a cast of characters that includes men as well as women as central characters, but really men who are equally voiceless and invisible in history. So there are a couple of orphan boys who we meet as children and watch grow up, and a free African man. That's what Africans were called in New England and around the country not African-Americans. They weren't considered Americans. They were considered Africans. The idea for this novel came to me many years ago. I was actually finishing writing The Red Tent in a rental house in Gloucester. And uh, I went to the bookstore, The Bookstore, is the name of the independent bookstore on Main Street in Gloucester, and was poking around the section on Cape Ann books, because I had only recently discovered Cape Ann was falling in love with it and wanted to read everything I could. And I picked up a little pamphlet in that bookstore and I want to read you the author's note to The Last Days of Dogtown, which explains where the idea came from and also, in a way, expresses my relationship to the past when I'm writing fiction. This is a work of fiction that rests lightly upon the historical record, which is spotty at best when it comes to the village of Dogtown. There was once such a hamlet set on the high ground at the heart of Cape Ann. You can find signs directing you to its ruins on that rocky fist of coastland, the northernmost boundary of Massachusetts Bay. A local pamphlet, Dogtown, A Village Lost in Time, by Tom Dresser, may still be available for purchase in the bookshops of Gloucester and Rockport, which was known as Sandy Bay until 1840. 
This little publication contains a not wholly accurate walking map of the area and some tales about the more vivid characters said to live there long ago. Most accounts of Dogtown's last citizens rest heavily upon a volume of 31 pages published in 1906 called In the Heart of Cape Ann or the Story of Dogtown. Illustrated by Catherine M. Fallensby, who had a fondness for drawing witches astride their brooms, it was written by Charles E. Mann. In his prefatory note, Mr. Mann revealed that nearly all his material was gleaned from, quote, the memories of Cape Ann's aged people, sweet-faced old ladies, often with sweeter voices, or men with whitened locks and time-furrowed cheeks, recalling the stories told them by the fireside by other dear old women and noble old men of a past century, end quote. In other words, ancient gossip and hearsay. I tell you this so you will not make the mistake of confusing my fancies for facts. And yet, the death of a village, even one as poor and small as Dogtown, is not an altogether trivial thing. Surely there was value in the quiet lives lived among those imposing boulders under that bright sky. Why not imagine their stories as real, if not true? For the space of this entertainment, where's the harm? That little introduction is actually a very step-by-step -step recounting of the way that I came to write this book. I did indeed find this little pamphlet by Tom Dresser, which is still in print and available. And it contained in it little thumbnail sketches of the characters who came to life in my novel. And when I read these little sketches, I thought, ooh, there's a book in here. There are these names, incredibly evocative names, like Easter Carter and Cornelius Finson and Oliver and uh, Judy Rhines, and I wanted to imagine more fully their lives. So I tucked the pamphlet away, and I finished, uh, I finished The Red Tent, and then I wrote a contemporary novel because I wanted to write something completely 360 degrees, or no, that would make it the same thing, 180 degrees, <laughs> 180 degrees different from uh, the Red Tent, so I wrote something contemporary. But I knew exactly where I had filed the little pamphlet about the village of Dogtown, and I pulled it out, and I started to do research to see if these little thumbnail sketches were based on anything. And I found Charles E. Mann's little book, which is about this big, and it contradicts itself at least two or three times. And one character is said to die at one period, and then he dies again much later. So I thought, oh, great. And every history written about Cape Ann refers to Charles E. Mann's little book as sort of the source material. Now, discovering that the source material was completely unreliable, I had permission, at least in my own mind, to invent the lives of these characters, and invent them, I did. So I made them up. They are based very loosely on these little thumbnail sketches, on a few stories that we know about them, and yet I put them together in this odd little community um, in a very rough place and time on Cape Ann. My goal when I'm doing research for a historical novel is to create the feeling and the tone and the texture of a world, so to, to give you a sense that you've entered that world, a world within the realm of the historically possible, and that's where, for me, I, I do self-defensive research. So there are no wristwatches in the Red Tent, nor are there wristwatches in the backwoods of Massachusetts in the 1820s. I actually find it much more daunting to write contemporary fiction because everybody will know if I got it wrong. In Good Harbor, for example, one of the women is being treated for breast cancer, and 
I was terrified to make any mistake there because too many people I know, certainly too many people you know, have been through these treatments. If anything was wrong, I imagined women throwing the book across the room and saying, she doesn't know what she's talking about, I'm not even going to finish this. But when I wrote the goat stew recipe in the red tent, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody can tell me I got it wrong. Even so, I should tell you, I got a chiding email from a very devout birder telling me that she was unclear what, whether there was, in fact, a catbird on Cape Ann in the 1820s, because according to her research, the catbird did not arrive in Cape Ann until sometime in the early 1900s, and did I know something she didn't know? And <laughs> so any mistake is bound to show up in the, world of e the wonderful world of email, which I adore. I love hearing from my readers, and I love getting email from my readers, which I, which I do get. But the details of the past, for me, are only props. Sometimes, I think, writers of historical fiction fall in love with their research, which is very easy to do. And they tell you everything there is to tell about, for example, doing laundry over boiling cauldrons of hot, hot water. And then if you're lucky, as I was lucky, you have an editor who says, uh, your research is showing, which is kind of like your slip is showing. Um, that, that some information is important, but to show off how much you've learned about the history of laundry in the 1820s is maybe not necessary to telling of this story. <laughs> there are people who enjoy that and who, who like reading the whaling chapters in Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> I'm a Philistine. I didn't like those chapters, what can I say? But there is enormous joy and a sense of discovery in doing historical research. I found out all sorts of wonderful things about the making of butter, thanks to some website, you know, you know ancientbutter.com or something like that. <laughs> something I didn't find much, though, on the internet was um, the history of Africans in New England, the history of black people in this part of the country. We are very, very proud of ourselves in New England as the cradle of abolition and abolitionists. But in fact, slaves were held in New England for a very long time, and there was great reluctance to free the slaves in New England, even um, in the early 1840s, and the, and the freeing of slaves was done piecemeal, state by state, commonwealth by commonwealth, and people held on to their property as long as they could, so you had to be 18 before you were given your freedom, and you had to have papers proving you were 18 before you were given your freedom. And Africans suffered greatly at the hands of the white majority, even freed Africans, um, many of whom, like the character in my novel, Cornelius Finson, found a way to live only by sort of fleeing from society and living in a rural area where he could be left alone, make a life for himself, a lonely life for himself, and yet, um, and have some dignity as a man. And I learned about this by rooting around in New England libraries. Um, we have wonderful networks in our libraries, and I borrowed books from all over the greater New England area, which were sent to the Newton Public Library, which is my public library. And so uh, while the internet was extremely helpful in a way that it wasn't existent when I wrote The Red Tent, there's still a place for the hands-on, tactile research in libraries, I'm glad to tell you. For me, any kind of historical research has to be done in the service of telling the story, and especially in the service of the characters and giving texture to the characters and the people. And my hope is that by the end of a book that I've written, you have the feeling that you understand what it took to live in a different time, and that you've met people that you had no clue existed. Most important for me, though, in whatever I write, in contemporary fiction or historical fiction, and this is true for me as a reader too. But when I write, my goal, my dream, is that 
you as the reader really cares about the characters and that you're going to miss them when you reach the last page and it's time for you to say goodbye to them. Thank you very much. Well, welcome everybody, and it's great to be back here on Writers on a New England Stage. And thank you, Anita, for joining us. It's wonderful to have you, too. I read The Red Tent, and I read this book, and it's really great to talk to you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, your New England roots, you live in Newton. Uh, here we are, Writers on a New England Stage, talking about a book uh, set in early post-colonial New England. Give us a sense, Anita, again, given the research that you did, of what life was like in a coastal New England town in that period. I was struck by just how really hard it was to live. Well, this is rural also. We're not talking about the town of Gloucester or the town of Sandy Bay, which did become Rockport. These characters are the last characters left in the original settlement of Cape Ann, which was never officially called Dogtown. It was called um, the Commons Settlement. It got called Dogtown later. It's sort of an insult to call a place a dog town. And uh, so these are the last characters living in the houses, ha people having d abandoned that settlement to make a better living on the coastland, either uh, fishing or quarrying later on. So these are the last characters who are misfits on, in some ways, eccentric people um, scratching together a living. And yet, I have a little house on, on Rockport in Cape Ann, so at night, in the winter, you hear the wind blowing through the trees, you hear the ocean, and it's, it's cold inside my insulated house with, you know, with central heating. And to imagine what life was like in um, an uninsulated wooden structure in the hills was just chilling. So it, just to imagine yourself in a world where it's really dark at night, when it's nighttime, that's it. Walking from one place to another in the absence of a full moon is dangerous and could be lethal. The world is it's just a very different place. So, um, and tramping around in that part of the world and imagining it without decent roads and on a night like this, and it's very much the same climate, how very cold you would be much of the year. Just, <laughs> I felt cold just reading the first couple chapters of the book. <laughs> it's, a cold, it's a cold beginning. <laughs> and hungry. I and mean, hungry. people, they had almost nothing to eat. Well, they were eating the same thing over and over again. There's one character in the book who's a boy, young boy growing, and he doesn't have enough to eat. He's just like one of those boys who, in our house, he would be at the refrigerator all the time. So he never had enough. So um, I think people were used to making do with less, um, and certainly with less variety in what they ate. But for a growing boy, in particular, hunger was, and he also had a very mean guardian who didn't feed him enough. But hunger was a part of, I think hunger was a part of life for people um, in rural New England in ways that we're not aware of. I was also struck, Anita, by how isolated people were. And of course, if you had to walk everywhere or take mm. a horse, you would be. But, you know, Boston, which now this area is a commuter town right, probably right. for Boston, but then it might as well have been, you know, France. It, it was a long way. And actually, it's not far to walk from Dogtown into Gloucester. It's a couple of miles. But again, on a night like this, after an ice storm like we've had uh, recently, even in daylight, if you were over the age of 40 or had a sprained ankle or or in any way compromised, you weren't going. <laughs> you were staying home because it was too rough to get anywhere. 
You mentioned in your comments, um, Anita, what you learned about early New England doing the research for this book. You mentioned laundry, mm -hmm. you mentioned butter making, you mm -hmm. mentioned the treatment of um, Africans. What else did you learn about the North Shore of Massachusetts in particular, or just New England life <coughs> in general that you hadn't really thought about before you started this book? I think I was really struck by the contrast between life in Boston, even life in genteel Gloucester in the 1820s and 30s, where there were beautiful houses and servants for the richer classes, and the gulf between that life and the life lived in a place like Dogtown, or in any small, poor, rural community. That they were living in some ways in the 18th century, where everyone else was already living in the 19th century. And sometimes I, uh, it still comes back to me. I'll be reading something, and you know, Mozart was writing at this period, or somewhere around this, and I'm thinking, but that's when Judy Rhines was freezing in, in Dogtown, and it, it seems impossible that this incredible high culture is happening in some parts of the world, which was actually, and, and being read and shared and known about in the United States, only a few miles away, and yet it, it might as well have been Mars or France. Or... Um, Anita, you are more well-known for writing <coughs> religious themes, uh, The Red Tent, as you mentioned, a biblical theme. Your other books have dealt with Jewish family life. What was it like for you to tackle this new territory that you explore in this latest book, The Last Days of Dogtown? It was a great relief to leave aside all my, my own particular heritage. And I, I really think of this as my American, uh, real American book. Although uh, Good Harbor is also very much a New England book and, and a book of, of American friends. But it, it does have Jewish characters in it. This book doesn't. And the first thing I read as I set out to write this was The Scarlet Letter, which I hadn't read since, I don't know, college probably, or high school possibly. Uh, and again, I was amazed at how funny parts of that book were and how you can't, you can't possibly get the humor unless you're way more than 18. Um, <laughs> um, so so it, was, it was really kind of invigorating to leave behind expect. I like to try new things in, in order to maybe disappoint the expectations of readers that it's going to be more of the same. It's going, this is, it was a stretch for me. It was a challenge for me. And yet I was an English major, an American lit major. And so it, in a lot of ways, it went back to my academic uh, intellectual roots, um, which really affected me in ways, again, that you don't realize, as with Virginia Woolf, who I cited so often um, earlier, you don't realize how those things are formative for you until much later when I look back and reading this, re, you know, working on this book, realizing how important Hawthorne and Melville had been to me um, as a younger reader. So, um, so I think it reflects all kinds of, of interest as a, in my reading life. We have a couple questions from the audience that want to know a little bit more about how you did this research about those untold <coughs> stories. You touched on it earlier, but give us a little more detail, please, Anita. I mean, if these are untold stories, where did you find even shreds of information? Uh, well, with the last days of Dogtown, there are these um, anecdotes, and I, I built around them. There's a story about a, some of you have read the book, there's a tooth-pulling scene. Um, yes, I'm doing <laughs> I know who's read <laughs> Murmurs it. Murmurs of yes, acknowledgement. Okay. So there was a description in, in, uh, in the man book of, uh, of someone claiming and making a big joke about pulling a tooth and pretending to stop 
and then and ha 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 and then I started again but I th sat with a with that anecdote for a moment and thought what would that be like to pretend to stop what would that feel like to the person on the other end of the pliers so that's one place that I begin so there's a little scrap of a story and then I did research about dentistry in the 19th century and boy are we glad we don't live back then <laughs> Um, even genteel ladies uh, and gentlemen, the, the debate was whether one should brush one's teeth at all, and then whether one should use ash or, uh, what's the other one? Something else disgusting that you wouldn't brush your teeth with. But, I mean, that, and that was considered hygiene, and that was up for grabs, too. So, so again, I talked to my dentist. Um, I showed the chapters to my dentist and to a physician friend to make sure that I was getting it physiologically right and I actually made changes after that so so I would piece together things taken from the sketchy historical record um, try to do some research and then try to make sure that it was physiologically possible and sometimes the research feeds the storytelling uh, I did some research on Africans in New England found out that in fact um, Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island was the, the location of the largest slaveholding in New England because there were these large dairy farms so they could bear um, they, they needed a lot more hands, so that was, and actually Rhode Island in general had more slaves per capita than, than the rest of New England. So learning that, I put Rhode Island in my book, which wasn't anywhere in the record, so it goes back and forth. Here's another question just about how you write, Anita. Um, what is your process of writing, e.g. time of day, place where you write, length of time per day, and has that process changed over time. This is uh, someone from the Time for Us book club. Oh, that's a nice name. Um, I try to write in the morning. I try to make time to write every day. I don't write every day. I'm a bad person. Um, <laughs> life gets in the way. Um, I'm involved in other projects as well, which is good for my writing. I mean, it's not, I couldn't possibly work from nine to five, and as a writer, I would stop. I, I just, it would, it's too lonely, it's too difficult. But um, when I'm working on a book, I'm thinking about it almost when I'm driving, um, when I'm walking the dog, when I'm reading something else. There's, there's sort of a percolating process that's going on a great deal of the time, especially once I'm, if I get a, some good momentum. But the best time of day for me is you know, after I walk the dog and I'm heavily caffeinated. Uh, I will sit at the computer <laughs> in my office and work. But I can work. Um, I work in the library. Um, I have a writing partner, and we will we'll work in the library together. We'll work in his office together sometimes. Um, I can write in airplanes and trains, or uh, certainly I can revise in airplanes and trains. Uh, so, and especially, especially when I'm really well into it, I can, I can work almost anywhere. Another question from our audience. What inspired you, Anita, to become a writer? And the second part of that, what advice would you give a budding author in her 40s? <laughs> What inspired me to become a writer? I gave up on the theater, and um, I was going to become an English professor for a while, but I really didn't like academia. So I moved to Boston to be a poet, and you can't make a living as a poet. So I actually became a journalist, and um, that was great training, writing on deadline and um, interviewing people. And, th and so th I moved into that, uh, into that world, and it was, it was terrific. It, I got to talk to people I would have never met in a million years and, uh, and just learned a lot about the world, especially, especially greater Boston. Um, I tell younger writers to read, read, read um, when they ask um, because 
I don't think we read enough and or read broadly enough, uh, read outside of our own experience, read books from different parts of the world, um, from different eras, from different times. Um, it's harder to read books like that. So the more reading you can, the better. And then for people who are starting to write later on, it's, it's a lot of sitting. <laughs> um, and it's a lot of frustration. And I think it's really helpful to be in a class, to have a group of writers who you share your work with. It's very lonely. And um, my writing group, uh, which is just three of us at this point, it's really kind of cheerleading as much as anything else, although we read each other's work and make comments and suggestions. It's a support group because um, it's very easy to get discouraged and quit. So find yourself out there. Find yourself other people to read, not in your family. Um, <laughs> it's too loaded. And, um, and, and writing classes can be terrific, too. I mean, I think it's mostly because they make you write and they make you get feedback and give feedback and really think about what you're doing. So I think all of those are, are good ways to make yourself going. And don't give up and just keep going. Don't give up. Well, you have to present something. You have to put something down on paper right. if you're in a group or right. a class instead That's of right. just sitting there drinking coffee in front of your And computer. worrying about, oh, no, no, is it good enough? Because it's never good enough. You can always make it better, but you have to start with something. Well, what hurdles did you face, uh, Anita, in first getting published? Again, this is another question from our audience. In first getting published. Right. Um, well, writing for newspapers is not such a problem because there's this empty hole that has right. to be filled in. You know, they're really happy to have that hole filled in. But, um, for example, your first, first big book, novel, The Red Tent. The Red I Tent. Mean, how hard was that to go to the publishers and say, look, I know I've been doing this series of books <coughs> on contemporary Jewish life, but now I want to do something completely different. Please publish it. Well, when I started it, even when I was halfway done, I was sort of thought it would be nice to get some money since I was doing all this work with, without getting paid. And everybody told me, yeah, nah, you got to finish a first novel. No one's going to give you an advance on an, on an unfinished novel by someone who's never written a novel before. Unless, of course, you're Madonna um, <laughs> or somebody else in Hollywood. Then they'll give you money for anything. But um, so, I wrote, uh, so I wrote half of it, sent it to an agent. Very interesting. Send me the rest of it. I finished the novel. I sent it to several agents who sent me back letters saying, historical fiction's a really hard sell. Nicely written, send me the next one. And I finally found somebody to represent me, and she sold it to a publishing house in New York for exactly the same money that I had published my first nonfiction book 20 years earlier. So it was like, oh, that's nothing. discouraging, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> but it was going to get published. It was very exciting. And um, so it was hard. It wasn't easy, even with, even with a long track record, even having published five books at that point, all of which were in print, none of which were big sellers, but they were steady sellers, and they're all still in print. And, you know, I, I, had a, I had a following in Boston. I was writing for the Boston Globe every Sunday. But, um, no, doesn't, doesn't sell it. I mean, it took somebody taking a risk, and it took one editor um, at a publishing company in New York taking a risk, a small risk financially, but still giving it a shot. So it's not easy, and it's gotten much harder. It's very hard to sell fiction now. Well, how did life change for you when that book really took off? I mean, a couple years ago... I guess it was more like 10 years ago now. It's the, the 10th ten anniversary. It's the Red Tenth, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that book was the book. It was on everybody's bookshelf. It was all over the bookstores. <laughs> How did that change your life? What did that feel like? Well, those ladies didn't, for the most part. It was definitely a Red... It was a book group. Uh, word of, it was a word-of-mouth phenomenon. And it built very slowly. Um, so I knew it was a bestseller before it hit the bestseller list because the independent bookstores, like your wonderful River Run bookstore... Um, were selling it in uh, the big bookstores. The big boxes weren't. So it slowly built. So it was sort of a slow, slow burn. 
my life changed in that um, I could write whatever I wanted next. So I could write um, a contemporary novel, and I could... Um, people answered my phone calls so I could become a community activist and uh, <laughs> help found a new organization. And I could send my daughter to college without mortgaging my house. <laughs> You've been described by some reviewers, Anita, as a feminist writer. How do you feel about that? How does that play into your work? It's who I am. It's like saying she's a woman writer. Ooh. Uh, or she's an American writer, or she's a feminist. I mean, it's a, descript- it's a descriptive term, and I wouldn't distance myself any more than I would say I'm not really an American writer, and I don't really write in English, and I... It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's an expression of, of me. I'm very comfortable being called that and calling myself a feminist. Being a feminist... Being a feminist is basically being a humanist, which means that all human beings, regardless of gender, in this particular case, are, e- are deserving of the same treatment um, and the same respect. And that's, that is it. That's feminism. And everything follows from that. So, not scary. Very American, actually. We have a couple cards, actually, from the audience. And I had this question, too. Um, what's your next novel going to be about? What's next for you? What untold stories would you like to tell? Um, I'm writing a novel set in 1945 in pre-state Palestine that tells the stories of four Holocaust survivors, women, four women. Land, yeah, it's really heavy. It's, it's not fun. And when can we expect that? Well, it's due. <laughs> what is it? I, I keep forgetting the deadline. I'm not finished. I'm a few years off. Yeah, and it probably requires a lot of trips to well, that area um, to dig yeah, around. Yes, and no. I, uh, I was there last March, and I spent a week doing research, and I have a terrific uh, translator and assistant who's helping me there in a way. I've never actually really used a research assistant before, but there's a lot of translation, so she's, um, she's terrific. She's American-born, has lived in Israel for a long time, so we're, we're very compatible. One last question for you, Anita, again from the audience. What do you read for fun to click out, as this person says? To click out. I love the ladies' detective agency books. I mean, I I find them charming, and I drink red bush tea all the time now. I just had some backstage. I find them just really fun to read, and... uh, and I tend not to read um, mysteries, but I, I do. I just am in, intrigued by this world that um, McCall uh, invents. And I got an email from somebody from that part of the world saying it was really pretty accurate, and uh, in some ways, um, I, do, I don't sort of read to zone out so much. Though I don't, I don't read um, romances, and I don't read mysteries, and I and I don't read science fiction. And I have, and I have great respect for all those genres, and I think it's a perfectly legitimate way to zone out. I watch too much TV. Um, uh, and I read The New Yorker religiously, and, um, and I read poetry to refresh my palate. Um, not so much fiction when I'm writing fiction, but um, I find um, Mary Oliver and Billy Collins and Pablo Neruda and Walt Whitman and uh, refreshing. I heard you tell another interviewer that you did read poetry, that you mm-hmm. didn't try to read too much fiction when you were writing fiction yeah. because you didn't want those other authors to sort of bleed into you mm-hmm. and, and unconsciously adapt Right. Their right. style. Right, that poor... I, I, you, know, you, know, you read these stories about people plagiarizing, and you know, there's a certain amount of unselfconscious absorbing from other writers, and so I'm in peril. I'm, 
I live in dread of doing that, so I really do avoid fiction when I'm writing fiction, which is a sad thing for me because I enjoy reading fiction a lot. Well, Anita, we'll look forward to the next book, and I want to thank you again so much to our special guest. Thanks for coming in. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you.